Hey, and welcome, finally, to episode 7 of the MTG Collection Builder podcast. I'm Brian, the lead and only developer of MTGCollectionBuilder.com, and in this podcast, as always, we're going to cover news relevant to Magic Collectors, including new products, card bannings, which can affect prices. We're also going to talk about the card of the week and the topic of the week, which this week are dual decks. I'm pretty excited to talk to you about these. I think they're a great collector's item. If you haven't heard of MTGCollectionBuilder.com, it's a website where you can track your Magic Collection and how much it's worth. You get an interface where it shows you every set of magic, and you have a progress bar that fills as you record cards in your collection. Make it really easy for you to buy cards that are missing from a specific set. You just click the button. It adds them all to your card on TCG Player. It's pretty cool. Which I made the site for myself, and now I have 32,000 users, which is still insane and very humbling to think about. And while I love all of my users, I'm really thankful for my patrons over at Patreon. If you haven't heard of Patreon, it's a way where you can support content creators, either podcast creators or creators of tools like mtgclashbub.com. You can contribute any amount you want monthly, ranging from $1 up to 10 And depending on the, your tier, you get access to perks like having ads removed for your account, getting a postcard in the mail signed by me, all sorts of cool stuff. If you're interested in supporting the site, feel free to head on to patreon.com slash mtgcollectionbuilder. The support of my patrons has made it directly possible to upgrade the infrastructure of my website, including most recently the image database and soon the new pricing service I'm working on. So thank you guys again. Every little bit helps. We also have quarterly giveaways. These are open to everyone, not just patrons. If you want to join them, just look out for the post in Patreon about the giveaways, and then you can go ahead and sign up by just leaving a comment below the post. The next quarterly giveaway should be at the end of September slash the start of October. So just keep a lookout for that announcement on patreon.com slash builder. And now let's move on to the news. There's quite a bit to catch up on. First, we're going to talk about numerous bannings that have happened across uh, three ban waves since we last spoke. And here they are. So in Standard, Agent of Treachery, Fires of Invention, Wilderness Reclamation, Growth Spiral, Teferi, Time Raveler, and Cauldron Familiar were all banned. In Historic, Agent of Treachery, Fires of Invention, Winota, Joiner of Forces, and Nexus of Fate were banned. Burning Tree Emissary, Wilderness Reclamation, and Teferi Time Raveler were suspended, not banned. In Pioneer, Oath of Nyssa was unbanned. Inverter of Truth was banned. Kathis, The Hidden Hand was banned. Walking Ballista was banned. And Underworld Reach was also banned. In Modern, Arkham's Astrolabe was banned. And in Popper, Expedition Map and Mystic Sanctuary were banned. And last but not least, in Brawl, big surprise, Teferi, Time Raveler was banned. And these are important things to keep an eye on because as collectors, prices can go up or down as a result of bannings and unbannings. Teferi, for example, has lost half of its value since the banhammer came down on it. So it's a good time to buy it now unless you think the price is going to go down further. On to the next item, also relevant, is that companion rules were changed in the game. So in the set Ikoria, Layer of Behemoths, there's a mechanic called Companion where... You can have a companion, think of like a Pokemon or a pet. So it's a monster that can start in your sideboard, and you can cast it from your sideboard if your deck matched the requirements of the monster. So you might, you might have a monster that says, hey, in order for me to be your companion, I need your deck to have nothing but cards with a converted mana cost three or less, or four or greater, like a specific requirement. And then at that point, you'd be able to cast your companion from your sideboard without having to draw it, which is pretty cool, very powerful. It was a lot of fun unlimited. Although it's a bit oppressive. And sure enough, they changed the rules. So now instead, once per game, anytime you can cast a sorcery, you can pay three generic mana to take your companion from your sideboard and put it into your hand. And then you'd have to cast it from your hand instead of your sideboard. So 
This made Companion a little more fair in limited and especially in constructed formats, but it did affect the price of Companion cards. They're never that expensive since they were all rares, but it did still decrease them, whereas it would have had the potential to appreciate in value had the mechanic not been changed. So keep in mind rules changes like these. On that note, there's another rules change announced by Wizards, where in Commander, Commanders were changed to now trigger death and exile triggers when they die and go to the command zone, where before they didn't, because a death trigger meant exactly a card going to the graveyard, and a card going to the exile zone would be the exile trigger. But now the command zone counts as both death and exile. So this, contextually of course, and this impacts some commanders considerably, which caused some price spikes. As an example, Child of Lara, which is Wooberg, so white, blue, black, red, and green mana, for a 6-6 legendary creature avatar with trample that reads, when Child of Lara is put into a graveyard from play, destroy all non-land permanents. They can't be regenerated. So now that this triggers when Child of Alara, as your commander, dies and goes to the command zone, you're going to get a lot more of those death triggers, which destroy all non-land permanents. This made the value of the card go from $3 to $35 initially, but it settled back down to $13, probably after buyouts and things settled. So again, uh, rules changes can really affect the value of cards, which in turn affects our ability as, co as collectors to either buy more or maybe sell them when they're high and buy, buy them back when we're low if that's worth your time and effort. I know it can be a fun little side project to kind of take part in the MTG stocks aspect of collecting for some. And next in the news is that the Commander Collection Green was delayed until December 4th. This is due to production delays, most likely due to COVID. And if you don't remember, the Commander Collection is a new set of Commander cards that was announced by Wizards a while back, where they're going to be box sets of reprints, um, eight each, very similar to the signature spell books, Chandra and Jace that we've been seeing. So they're only going to be sold in WPN stores. The primary version is a non-foil version, but there are premium versions that only the super high up WPN stores get. But long story short, this has been delayed until December 4th, which is a bit of a bummer. I know it's Wizards is already having a hard time, and the last thing they needed was another delay, but we'll all live. There are more important things to worry about right now. Next in the news is that if you didn't think it was complicated enough to collect magic cards already, surprise, we now have a fourth type of booster to learn about. So... So let's start by catching up with the current situation. So back in the day, we had just a booster pack. We now call that a draft booster. And those are the boosters that we open and play in draft. They usually have one mythic or rare, three uncommons, and then 10 commons. That's, that's how they work. Later, Wizards created themed boosters, which were often restricted to a color. So if you went to your Walmart or Target, you could buy a red booster pack that just had red cards in it. Kind of cool if you're a casual player and you like a specific color. Seems like a good buy to me. And then later they added collector boosters, which were like super premium price boosters with a lot of variant showcase cards, more foils, more chances of mythics and rares, but accordingly super expensive. So Wizards did some research and they learned that over half of booster packs are not used to play with. So half of booster packs that are like regular draft booster packs would never be used in draft or sealed. They would just be open for fun, which makes sense. We see this in the community. I see it in my local game store all the time, even though it makes Marshall Sutcliffe from Limited Resources cry and asleep. It's common, right? So Wizards was kind of thinking about it, like, wait a second. We designed booster packs for a draft, but half of them are being used to open, right? So what if we separated the concepts? What if we made a booster pack more designed to be open for fun and still kept the draft packs pure and intended for draft? That way, people that like to crack packs, they can crack packs that are more fun for them to crack and potentially have higher value. So... 
It created what is now known as the SAT Booster Pack. And it has 14 card slots, and we're going to go through each one right now and learn how it works. Slot number one is the Art card slot, which was originally introduced in Modern Horizons. So it's not an actual magic card, it's just art from a card in, in full size, right? So it's about the size of a magic card, but it's just art. Which is neat, it's a little another thing to collect, and another thing that I suppose MTG Collection Builder will have to track. Uh, but they did spice it up. 5% of the time, it's going to have a gold-stamped signature from the artist included. So, in essence, there will be premium versions of the art these art cards to collect, which is cool. But it, it may be able to lead to a little bit of collector fatigue, but that, that's a nice little thing. So that's slot number one, is the art card. Slot number two is the land slot, and in the case of Zendikar Rising, which is the next set, the first set that will have a set booster pack, that's going to be the full art basic lands from the set. And as you know, Zendikar is kind of famous for the full art lands. They kind of pioneered that other than some of the unsets. 15% of the time, this slot will be foil. So slot number two is the land slot. Slots three through eight are called connected commons and uncommons. So like any booster pack, you need commons and uncommons in there. It's not going to be all rares and mythics. These will be connected thematically, either by creature type or story or synergy. And unlike regular booster packs, there's going to be varying ratios of commons to uncommons. You're always going to have at least one uncommon, but you also have a chance that all of these cards will be uncommon. Although statistically, most of the time, it's going to range from one to three uncommons. I would say it would be two on average. So that's slots three to eight, connected commons and uncommons. Slot number nine is called the head turning slot. And these will be the visually interesting cards. Uh, think showcase cards that we've had in the last few sets. Uh, so for Zendikar, that'll be a common or uncommon that is a showcase card or a yet unrevealed type of card from that set. So they have some new type of card that we don't know about and the slot will have a chance of having one. And that's slot number nine, the head turning slot. Slot number 10 and 11, they're both wild card rarity slots, so it's just a slot for another card, and it could be any rarity from common to mythic rare. They can also be showcase cards, so breaking down the math, there's a 23% chance that in any given set booster, you're going to get an extra rare or mythic in the booster. So that by itself makes it more exciting than a traditional draft booster. So those are slots 10 through 11, the wild card rarity slots. That brings us to slot number 12, which is the rare and mythic slot, just like a regular booster one of the slots will either be a rare or a mythic, but they actually made a change that affects set boosters and regular draft boosters. Previously, one out of every eight rares would be a mythic, but now it's one out of 7.4 rares would be a mythic. Kind of a strange number. It must be a side effect of a change in collation, perhaps. So this change takes effect for set boosters and for draft boosters moving forward. So we're going to see slightly more mythics over time. And that was slot 12, the rare and mythic slot. Slot 13 is the foil slot, which can be any rarity. So you're guaranteed a foil in every one of these sub-booster packs, and it can be any rarity. So you, you can have the god pack with three mythics, right? And that's slot number 13, the foil slot, which brings us to the last slot, slot 14, which is the token or ad card slot, which, you know, I know people always say, oh man, I got a stupid advertisement, at least I could have gotten a token. But they're going to give you something. 25% of the time, this slot will have a card from the list, quote-unquote, which can be any of 300 cards from Magic's past. They'll be printed just as they appeared in the original printings, but they're going to have a Planeswalker stamp on the lower left corner of the art. Examples I gave include Muscle Sliver, Cloud Goat Ranger, and Pacto Negation, so cool older cards. And starting with Zendikar Rising, like I said before, that's when these will come out. It'll be about a dollar more 
per pack, but it might depend on the region that you come from. And the booster boxes will be composed of 30 cards instead of 36, but I can't imagine why you'd buy a booster box, because it's not like you're going to draft these things. They're not designed for draft, but I guess if it's cheaper to buy it in a booster box form and you like to crack packs, then this product is for you. They're just going to come out in English and Japanese to start, but they may come to other localizations in the future. And, in case you don't know whether or not you'll like these, at the Zendikar Rising pre-release, they're going to be giving out one of these packs to every participant just for playing. And that's the end of our news, so let's go ahead and move on to the card of the week. And this week's card is Nalathni Dragon. It's two red-red, so four mana total, for a 1-1 creature dragon with flying and banding. And it has an activated ability for red that reads, Gain plus one plus O until end of turn. If more than triple red were spent in this manner during one turn, bury a Nalathni dragon at the end of turn. So it's kind of old school phrasing, but basically if you activate the ability more than three times, then you're going to have to sacrifice a creature at the end of the turn. The card also reads Dragon Con 1994 in its flavor text, and it's illustrated by Michael Whelan. So why am I talking about this card? It seems pretty garbage, right? Especially, I mean, no one knows what banding does. But it seems pretty bad compared to modern cards, and I'm talking about this card because it's one of the earliest promo cards ever made. As you saw from the flavor text, it was given out at Dragon Con in July of 1994. Specifically, visitors to Dragon Con got a postcard that they could mail in to redeem this card, and they were shipped out to people in October. It had an original print run of 10,000 cards, but there were issues with price gouging and a ton of complaints. So many, in fact, that Wizards later released it in issue number three of the Duelist. And then later in issue number four of the Duelist Companion, popular magazines at the time. There's also a Japanese version of this card, which is super obscure. It came from a redemption correction program. So check out how obscure this one is, right? So there was a printing error in October of 1996 where the Japanese Mirage set was missing the card floodplain in its, in its sheets of cards as they printed them. In its place, there was an extra Crystal Vein card instead. So basically, if you're a Japanese player and you're opening Japanese boosters, you would never get a floodplain, but you would get all these extra crystal veins instead that were supposed to be floodplains. So what Wizards did is they offered a replacement. For every two crystal veins that you send in, they would receive one, one crystal vein back and a Japanese floodplain. So they, would, they were kind of fixing the error in this manner. And then as an extra apology, they threw in a Japanese Nalafni dragon as well. So that's how you can get the Japanese version of this very early promo is from folks who got it as an apology for the printing error in Japanese Mirage booster packs. Due to the controversy surrounding this card and the subsequent reprints, Wizards decided to stop releasing functionally unique promotional cards in this manner, because that was the only way to get this card. There was no other way to do it, and it's not like it was an alternate art promo of an existing card. It was truly a unique card, so for collectors like you and me, if there's only 10,000 printings of the card, but there are more than 10,000 collectors, you're going to have a problem. So they decided they were going to stop doing that, but as history showed, uh, we, we later learned that they started doing this with buy a box promos instead. So they kind of walked back on this policy, but at the time it was really controversial. So despite this card being originally pretty rare and being one of the first promos in the game, you can own one today in pretty good quality from anywhere 15 to $30. I may or may not have just purchased one on eBay. And that's the card of the week, Nalathni Dragon. And now let's talk about the main topic of the week, dual decks. So dual decks, if you don't know, they're a line of products that are composed of 21 pairs of 60-card decks that are meant to be played against each other. So they release 21 dual decks, and each time you buy a set of dual decks, you get two decks when you purchase them, two 60-card decks. 
The MSRP was around $20, and then four of these decks, uh, the first four that came out, they were reprinted in dual decks anthology in newer card frames, but they're otherwise the same deck in, in a nice big commemorative box. The first dual deck was released in 2007, and the series ran all the way into 2018, so they actually don't make any more dual decks. They ended about two years ago. It's been replaced by the Challenger deck series, which we'll talk more about in a bit. And these dual decks were comprised entirely of reprints, but notably they had alternate art versions of the headliner rares and mythics in these sets. And then later they would expand that to some commons and uncommons as well, often between four and ten alternate art reprints in these decks. And each set of dual decks featured a rivalry of some sort, either a tribe versus another tribe, like goblins versus elves, or a planeswalker versus another planeswalker. And it often tied into the current set's theme or into a specific storyline web comic or novel at the time. So why dual decks? Why are these notable? Why are these worth talking about? Well, first, it's an actually finished product line, which to me is a big deal as a collector. Like, you can go out and collect every dual deck. You know they're not going to make anymore, most likely. So you can literally catch them all and collect the whole line. That's pretty cool. And the next reason why these are notable is because there's actually an official storage solution, which is pretty cool. Most of the time we have to invent our own storage solutions and we have a lot of really good conversations about them, but in the case of dual decks, they already come with those as a separate product. Ultra Pro made what are called dual deck boxes, which are one giant deck box, which can then hold two mini deck boxes, each of which holds one of the two dual decks in the dual deck set that you purchased. And the art on the box clearly labels the name of the dual deck, and it, each of the miniature deck boxes labels that particular dual deck as well. And it's pretty cool. In some cases, you even had official sleeves for the dual decks, although in other cases, you'd kind of have to cobble together your own that fit thematically. I believe boxes are made for all of them, but some of them are pretty hard to find now. I had to buy one of them from a seller in Japan, of all places. And uh, I'm personally surprised that Wizards of the Coast doesn't do this more. I know a lot of collectors that struggle to figure out how to how to store and display their magic collections. And if imagine if there were official products for organizing and storing our magic collections like across all the sets. Uh, I think these would get snapped up in a heartbeat. I'm sure that the logistics behind printing all those, especially for older sets, it, it might be complicated to get the profit margin up, but still a, still a thought. Another reason to collect dual decks is that they're legitimately fun to play. Um, with a few exceptions, the decks are pretty well balanced and fun to play against each other, and they are often meaningful synergies, or at least differing deck playstyles that makes it cool and interesting for replayability. They're not exactly newbie-friendly. A lot of them have really complicated mechanics, but they're great for casual games or for getting back into the game if it's been a while. Since you don't have to put forth the effort of researching and building a deck, you can just pick up a set of dual decks and play with your wife. Another reason to collect these is that they've retained their value fairly well. At an MSRP of $19.99, it's not like they're expensive to begin with. But sealed copies of some dual decks like Knights vs. Dragons go on eBay for $100 today. So it's, they do appreciate in value quite nicely. And the alternate art reprint in these decks make them a legitimate purchase. It's not just a starter deck of commons and uncommons. There are unique printings of cards in these, which are of interest to collectors. And the last reason where these are notable to me is the, their historical value. You can kind of see design patterns and art changing in magic over time as you get from the older dual decks to the new. The older dual decks definitely have a grittier feel than the newer dual decks, and I think that's a good thing if you want to go back in time and experience magic as Garfield intended it. So now we're going to take a walk back through time and kind of paint a mental map of each dual deck as they came out and then anything that was notable about them at the time. So here we go. The very first dual deck released in 2007 was Dual Decks Elves vs. Goblins, which was notably also reprinted in Dual Decks Anthology. 
It featured goblin and elf cards ranging from the sets Apocalypse to Lorwyn, and it was very tribal in nature, so much in fact that they had an emphasis on mirrored pairs, where if they gave elves a special card, they tried to give an equivalent card to goblins as much as they could. And the main examples of this would be Ambush Commander and Siege Gang Commander, which also were the two cards that had alternate arts. So right out the gate with Dual Decks, they had a pretty good concept of, hey, if we're going to reprint cards, at least make sure some of them are alternate arts so they're interesting to collectors. So it's not just new players that would buy these things. Next dual deck was Jace versus Chandra, which was the first Planeswalker-themed dual deck. And this one, instead of being tribal, kind of featured different deck play styles. It had a control deck with Jace's deck and a, an aggro burn deck with Chandra's. And this was also reprinted in Dual Decks Anthology. There was alternate art of Jason Chandra, but also there are alternate art of some additional cards in the Dual Deck as well, where they actually would feature Jace or Chandra in the art. So Jace appeared in Counterspell, Chandra appeared in Incinerate, and so on. And very notably, there's a special Japanese language edition of this Dual Deck release that featured Jace and Chandra in an anime style. I have no idea how this came about, but it's, it's a pretty cool collector's item, and it's not that expensive even today. The next dual deck was Dual Decks Divine vs. Demonic, printed in 2009. And this one was also reprinted in Dual Decks Anthology. It featured Angels vs. Demons, uh, going back to a tribal theme. And like the Chandra vs. Jace deck, there are plenty of alternate art cards available in reprintings. After that, also in 2009, was Dual Decks Garrick vs. Liliana. It was the last of the decks that were reprinted in Dual Decks Anthology. And this one was more flavor-themed than uh, mechanic-themed for each deck. Uh, and it was based on the Hunter and the Veil webcomic. And like the others, there were plenty of alternate art cards included. The next deck was Phyrexia versus The Coalition in 2010. These were also flavor-based, uh, released in anticipation of Phyrexia's invasion in the Scars of Meriden block, which was a big deal at the time. Like, you actually didn't know which side was going to win and all that. This one had some drama, though. They, they messed up a little bit, or at least some people feel they did. They reprinted a card called Phyrexian Negator, and I'll read the card to you now. It's two and a black, so three mana total, for a creature horror with trample, and it's a 5-5. Five five. And it reads, whenever Phyrexian Negator is dealt damage, sacrifice that many permanent. So wow, it's a 5-5 a five five for three with trample. That's really powerful. But man, that's a big downside, right? So you've got to make sure you include it in a deck that can deal with that downside. So the reason why this is a big deal is because this card was on the reserved list, which is a list of cards that wizards promise they'll never reprint. Things like Black Lotus, the Moxin you know, stuff where they didn't want to worry collectors that were more financially inclined that their cards would depreciate in value by being overprinted to death, which is something that happened in the past. But it's a very controversial topic. But there was a loophole at the time that allowed them to reprint cards as foils if they had never had a foil printing before. So they used that loophole to reprint Phyrexian Negator. There was a huge community backlash. They pushed back, and then Wizards changed their policy. Okay, if it's on the reserve list, we're not going to get cute. We're not going to reprint it in foil. Even if it never had a foil reprint, that's the, we're not going to do that again, we're sorry. So despite this card being uh, on the reserve list, it's only 66 cents. Like, what in the world? I'd, maybe I should collect all the reserve list cards, that would be kind of cool. So that's that dual deck. The next one in 2010 was Elspeth versus Tezzeret. It was a primarily flavor-based decks, and it was also the first Planeswalker-based dual deck that didn't involve a webcomic at all. All of the other ones had a, a hook or a tie-in to a webcomic or a story on Wizards website. This one didn't. Although it did tie in thematically into the plot of what was going on in Magic at the time. The next deck was Dual Decks Knights vs. Dragons in 2011, and it was a tri tribal decks. This one is notable in that a sealed copy of these goes for 100 bucks. Uh, I think the cover art's really cool. But otherwise, there's nothing else that notable about it. Same usual alternate arts like all the others. Next, also in 2011, was Dual Decks Ajani vs. Nicol Bolas. 
This one is primarily, well, it's actually a mix of flavor and mechanic-based themes for each deck. And otherwise, nothing too notable, just kind of more of the same. And this is where I started to get, started to get that feeling with these dual decks, where they were printing them twice a year. So it, they started to feel less special to me over time. Next dual deck in 2012 was dual decks Venzer versus Koth. Again, primarily flavor-based. This is the first dual deck to also include emblems for each Planeswalker, which is kind of cool. But this dual deck got terrible press. People really hated it. They cited that there was a lack of power and synergy and that they just played awkwardly. These were kind of panned by critics in terms of gameplay. Next, also in 2012, were dual decks Is It vs. Golgari. So two Ravnica guilds pitted against each other, which is very thematic and cool. Um, the Ravnica guilds have been very popular in history. And there was a lot of alternate cards in this printing. There were 12 cards total. Where normally alternate art would range between four and eight cards. Um, this one had a little more. Next, in 2013, you had Dual Deck Soren versus Tibalt. Tibalt's the worst Planeswalker ever printed. You know this, I know this, we all know this. But the decks were still cool, they're pretty flavorful. Soren was particularly cool, but I always felt bad being the Tibalt player when playing this dual deck. And then after that, also in 2013, were Dual Decks Heroes versus Monsters. These are red white heroes versus red green monsters. And this was the very first dual deck to include preview cards from an upcoming set. So this was for the Theros block. And in the dual deck, you actually would have six cards that were previews of cards from a set that had yet released. This was really exciting to me at the time to kind of get a sneak peek for the next set as a drafter. And I think it was a really good move. So in addition of having alternate art cards, the dual deck started featuring preview cards from future sets. You kind of got that future site feel. Next in 2014 were dual decks, Jace vs. Vraska. And here's something weird. In 2020, so this year, the company World Smallest Toys released a miniature version of this dual deck. So you, you have a mini version of Jace vs. Vraska that includes 60 fully playable cards in each deck. And the cards measure, apologies to for the European folks, this will be in, in American units, at a 1.75 by 1.37 by 1 inch. So they're, they're really small, about the size of the top of your thumb. And they're only $8, and according to the World's Smallest Toys website, they have like 1,600 of these to sell to. So I don't know who their market is. I, I almost bought one, but I'm going to hold off for a little bit. But yeah, kind of a neat little niche side magic product. Like, how in the world did this even happen? Like, logistically, who talked to who and got the licensing rights for this? I'd love to learn more about this. If you know more, reach out to me. Next dual deck in 2014 as well was Speed versus Cunning, which was Mardu versus Jeskai from the Tarkir block. And I wonder why they didn't make that the name of the deck. Um, if you remember the, the deck from Ravnica, it was actually called Izzet versus Golgari. So here they could have called the deck Mardu versus Jeskai, but they didn't. They called it Speed versus Cunning, which to me is super generic, but it is what it is. It also, like the Theros block one, included six preview cards for the cons of Tarkir block, which is which is cool. I think that was a great idea to run with. And then now we go to a little intermission, because in 2014, that's also when Dual Decks Anthology released, which is a reprinting of the first four Dual Decks that ever came out, um, but they're reprinted in modern card frames instead of the older ones. And it had an MSRP of $100, so a little more than the original MSRPs combined, but they came in this really nice commemorative box. I thought it would make a great Christmas gift for a Magic player who didn't own the older dual decks. It was pretty cool. And then in 2015, we had dual decks, Elspeth vs. Kiora. Notably, uh, one of the alternate arts in this, in this set, uh, Accumulated Knowledge, used art that first appeared in the digital game Duels of the Planeswalkers. You don't see this very often, where art that only appears in the digital game appears in a physical printing subsequently, but that, that's a pretty cool little piece of trivia if you want to impress your friends on a Saturday night. 
And then next, also in 2015, we had dual decks Zendikar versus Eldrazi. And like the other dual decks uh, that were based on specific sets, this one had preview cards for Battle for Zendikar. So there are six cards in the set that came from Battle for Zendikar that you got a sneak peek of before the set came out. Cool as always. Then in 2016, we're getting toward the end of the dual decks now, we had Blast versus Cursed, which were like humans versus monsters. Nothing too notable, you know, plenty of alternate art printings, but nothing special. And then again in 2016, you had dual decks Nissa versus Obnixilus. And then in 2017, you had Mind versus Might, where this one notably had 11 rares instead of the usual six. So they just kind of upped the count of rares. I'm not sure if this was by design or by accident. Again, but we're start, really starting to get to the uninspired decks, like Mind versus Might, Blast versus Curse. To me, these are a little too generic. They're not as exciting as Dragons versus Knights or Goblins versus Elves. Like, it's just a little, a little dry, but they improved it. In 2017, they had dual decks Merfolk versus Goblins, which was pretty well loved because these are some of the Magic's favorite tribes, Merfolks and Goblins. Um, it included 10 rares instead of the usual six, so that was cool too. And then we go to the very last dual deck, which is dual decks Elves versus Inventors which is really elves versus artifacts, although Inventors is a tribe, I think it's totally fine. And due to the timing of this printing, the templating and the card faces of the dual decks actually use new card styles that wouldn't appear until Dominaria. So this was kind of a sneak peek into the new card frame, which is interesting. I wonder why, why it happened this way. I, I don't know if the dual deck cancellation was a surprise or planned. But either way, in 2018, that was the last dual deck ever made. And this series was replaced by Challenger decks, which, if you don't know, they're decks designed to be competitive at FNM, where they have 60 cards plus a 15-card sideboard right out of the box. And they closely mirror decks that are in the meta or predicted to be in the meta at the time. And they're a pretty good way for new constructed players to just hit the ground running. But this is an end of an era. Uh, we no longer have dual decks anymore. And I think Wizards had something pretty special with them. Uh, pros in my mind about dual decks is that they're pretty fun to play on thematic. They were dirt cheap at like $19.99, that's pretty affordable. And there are a couple of collector justifications for collecting them, including the alternate art, the official storage solution, which is awesome. And because of that, I think they displayed really well on a shelf as part of your collection. And the last pro in my mind is that the preview for the next box cards were exciting too. That's kind of it for the pros. In terms of the cons, I think they, the biggest thing I had against dual decks is that they're too complex for new players. Especially the older decks, they did not hold back. They had all kinds of mechanics that they would just throw at you without reminder text. And if you didn't know what they did, you'd have to go to a rule book or, or to the internet to figure out what they did. So my wife and I, we kind of worked around this and to onboard new players into Magic, we built our own dual decks that were designed to be newbie friendly and to teach people basic rules of the game, a couple of hand-picked mechanics, color identities, and deck styles like aggro, control, or combo decks. And some of the dual decks, another con, is that they had uh, balance or power issues. It can take quite a high sample size before you see this. Um, but when you do, it's kind of frustrating. Like, man, we, we played these dual decks 20 times, and that dual deck wins three-fourths of the time. What, what's going on here? You know, It's kind of a, a bummer that some of them weren't as balanced or as fun as others. And the last con for me is that these decks were printed too often. Twice a year felt really excessive, and... Over time, they got less exciting and more generic. It, it just felt like they are kind of rushed or hacked out, but I don't mean to besmirch Wizards of the Coast. Uh, I'm sure a lot of thought and love goes into these products, but that, that was just my impression as a consumer, that something was missing over time and that it could have been better. Ultimately, while I enjoyed Dual Decks as a series, I'm glad that it's over now and that you can just kind of settle down and collect them all if you want. And it's an achievable collection goal, which is super cool. But if I could replace them with anything, I don't think it would have been Challenger Decks. Uh, Challenger decks are still cool, and I'm glad they exist, but I would have replaced them with 
Something like what my wife and I built. Something that's more newbie-friendly to introduce people into Magic by just handing them pre-built decks. But something that will also make them appealing for established players. Um, stuff like previews of upcoming sets. So totally cool. Maybe including some of the new showcase styling as part of the deck. Maybe some unique full art lands or something that are of interest to a collector. Needed reprints from Modern or Legacy thrown in there as a cherry on top. I, I think it... Hand this to the professor from the Telerian Community College, and I'm sure he could come up with an awesome product in this price range. And that's it for Dual Decks. I wanted to thank you for joining me for this episode of MDG Collection Builder Podcast. If you have any suggestions for either the podcast or the website, feel free to reach out to me via email, where I'm brian at mtgcb.com, Facebook, where I'm MTG Collection Builder, or Twitter, where I'm at mtg underscore cb. If you want to support this website or the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash mtgcollectionbuilder and check out all the pledge levels. Like I said before, you can get access to exclusive updates and polls, ad removal for your account, and much more. Thanks, and I'll see you guys next time. Hey, and welcome to another secret segment of the podcast. My favorite part of it at all, because it's completely unscripted. Not that the other part's really scripted, it's more of a series of bullet points, but you get the picture. So, while this podcast is very much on the when I feel like I need a break from coding schedule, I did want to apologize for the long mid-season break, we'll call it, between episode 6 and episode 7. I was dealing with a lot of medical stuff and had some 12-hour workdays mixed in there. So I kind of had to choose some weeks. Okay, am I working on coding the new version of the website, or am I doing the podcast? So, whenever I was faced with that choice, I chose the website, which I think is a correct choice. But over time, I would like the podcast to become a little more stable in its release cycle, because I know I have quite a few listeners now, and they they rather enjoy it, which is super cool. But uh, this experience with all this medical stuff kind of led me to reflect on being more assertive with your medical care. So I'm going to get a little preachy here and talk to you about medical care. Um, So this is a little ethnocentric. I live in the United States. But for other folks that have uh, health coverage worldwide as well, I'm pretty sure this will apply to you. So in the United States, and hopefully other places, you, you can get a free yearly checkup. So if you're, if you're medically insured, you can get a free checkup for a year. That's covered along with all standard blood work and other tests that you might need. You should do this every year. If you're insured, you basically have no excuse not to go to the doctor once a year. You can get some time off of work, right? Consider it a mini vacation and just get yourself looked at, get everything checked out, and make sure everything's okay. Also go to your yearly dental and vision exams, too. You can catch a lot of medical issues early. I've spoken to some colleagues and younger people, and the number of people not taking advantage of the free yearly medical checkups is is mind-blowing because the blood test can really catch some important medical issues early, and in some cases, it can be the difference between life or death. On that note, um, push for testing and push to see specialists when you want to. Trust your instincts on this. If something seems or feels off with your body, it probably is. And a lot of primary care physicians, especially if you're on an HMO plan, they're really shy about approving you to see a, a specialist. And in my case, I got burned by this. So this is this is getting a little personal, but I think I trusted my primary care physician too much. I've struggled with hormone issues my whole life where I just my body doesn't produce the correct levels of hormones that I need. And my primary care physician, he just gave me like medication to cover up the problem, right? And I, I remember talking to him and saying, hey, should I maybe go to an endocrinologist or something to check this out? And he's like, oh no, they're just gonna test you for the same things I tested you for. Um, you're good. And I was like, okay, fine. So fast forward a decade later, suddenly my medication isn't working anymore, right? My hormone levels are still out of whack. So we like tried doubling the dosage and they're still out of whack. So it stops making sense. So I switched to a PPO plan. I went ahead and saw a specialist on my own without needing my primary care physician's consent. And the very first test they did, 
showed that I, I've had a medical problem for over two decades that could have been easily caught with a simple blood test. And instead of covering up the issue with medication, I could have cured it in about three months of just taking a pill twice a week. So pretty frustrating. I'm wasting all this money on prescriptions to cover up a hormone problem that actually had a really easy to identify root cause and a really easy solution to implement. I'll most likely be cured in a couple months. And, and there's a small chance I'll need to take the medication for life, but still compared to having to take the hormone replacement therapy, like it's really a big deal. So, you know, it's just a personal example, but so as a patient, it's really important to not only be informed, but to push for your rights, you know, don't let primary care physicians walk all over you, you know, really push to see the specialist if you feel like it's necessary and push for tests if you just want to rule out that something isn't wrong with you. If the primary care physician gives you a hard time, get a new one. Even under an HMO, this should be possible, I believe. And my medical issues, they're resolved now. I'm perfectly fine. They, they were consuming a lot of my time, and I had my first MRI, which is super exciting. Don't recommend it. They're way louder than you expect. And kind of scary, too. Like, they'll make random alarm sounds, and no one tells you, like, hey, when you get into this MRI, not only are going to hear random banging and jackhammer noises, sometimes it's going to sound like an alarm, like something's gone seriously wrong, but no one's going to tell you anything, so you're just going to, like, freak out. Um, yeah, don't recommend. But, hey, I've warned you now. So if you hear an alarm in an MRI, it's totally normal. It's just part of the random cacophony of noises that you get subjected to. And thanks again for listening to the episode. I'm, I'm aiming to get the podcast back to releasing every couple of weeks, maybe every two or three. But I am prioritizing both working on the new version of the website. Like I said before, the pricing service is almost done. I'm excited to get that out and uh, continue to work on the rest of the site. And I also don't want to compromise the quality of the podcast. I, I like to research pretty thoroughly before I talk about it to discover all the little corner cases and interesting historical tidbits. And this can take two to four hours per episode, plus an hour-ish to record, an hour or two to edit. So um, it takes quite a bit of time. I enjoy doing it. But if I have to choose between the podcast or working on the website, I'm going to lean a little toward the website, at least for now. But with any luck, the podcast will be back to its regularly scheduled program. Thanks, and have a good one. And also got your yearly checkup. This is an official order coming from MTG Collection Builder. Thank you.